how do you decide uh, who you're going to marry? Uh, Kirsten, age 10, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it way before, and then later you find out the person you're going to be stuck with. Um, what is the right age to get married? Uh, Camille, age 10, 23 is the best age to get married because you've known the person forever by then. How can a stranger tell if two people are married? Uh, Derek, age eight, you might have to guess based on whether or not they're yelling at the same child. Um, and that, that is kind of how uh, younger people perceive love and marriage. I wanna share with you something that was actually published in 1886. So you can kind of see an older view of love and marriage. And here's just some advice that was written in a, in a local newspaper years ago. It says, uh, first piece of advice, let your love be stronger than your hate or your anger. Learn the wisdom of compromise. It is better to bend a little than to break. Believe the best rather than the worst. People have a way of living up or down to your opinion of them. Remember that true friendship is the basis of any lasting relationship. The person you choose to marry is deserving of the courtesies and kindness you bestow on your friends. And all of that, I mean, think about all of that relational advice way back in 1886, and it's still relevant today. And I kind of feel that way about the text that we're going to study today. We're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And whether this is your first Sunday to church or you've been here a million times, you've heard 1 Corinthians 13. If you've recently been to a wedding, uh, you've heard 1 Corinthians 13. This is sometimes called uh, the love chapter of, of the Bible. Uh, and like I said, almost everyone has heard uh, this text. But here's what I want you to understand. 1 Corinthians 13 was not written to a couple getting married. It's fine to apply it that way. I, I love uh, when I do weddings, uh, hitting on 1 Corinthians 13. But it wasn't written to a couple getting married. Uh, it was written to a church that was in trouble. And so this is actually, we use it in weddings and we use it to describe love. This is actually a church text. And it's written to a church that was in trouble to remind them of the love they should have for one another, but also to remind the church of the example that they should be setting for their city when it comes to love. And, and this is exactly what Paul is writing. So the city of Corinth was uh, pretty significant in, in size and the church, as a result of the significance of the city, the church had a kind of wide demographic that they, they were reaching. They were reaching people of significant wealth uh, and they were reaching people more of humble means. They were reaching Jews and they were reaching people that weren't Jews, Gentiles. They were reaching men and they were reaching women. They were reaching young and they were reaching old. It actually kind of reminds me of our church here at Northwest, uh, that when you kind of examine our church, we have uh, each socioeconomic group uh, in involved in our church. We span the generations. Uh, we span the political spectrum. It's interesting, whenever I talk to someone, a lot of times people will make an assum assumption about which political party attends here the most or, or, or is the biggest group. We have people from every political spectrum you can imagine uh, that, that, that is attending uh, our, our church. We have boomers and millennials and uh, all, the, all the generations. And to me, this is an opportunity for the body, just like with Corinth, this is an opportunity for the body of Christ to be at its best. When boomers and millennials uh, learn to love one another. 
when the young and the old serve side by side, I think like Scott was mentioning, that was one of the, the great things being in the building all week to see uh, with CIY. It's to see the kids worshiping and uh, we, we, uh, the, the older generations loving them and serving them and, and helping them worship. It was really a, a beautiful thing to see. When the rich uh, and the not so rich learn, learn to worship to, re, together, when Republicans and Democrats study God's word together, this is when the church is at its best. When you have people from every walk of life, every background, and they're figuring it out, it is when the church can shine the brightest. Listen, it's also a potential powder keg. It is. These issues, when you've got all of these mix of issues, these issues can divide us. They can separate us. Uh, They can cause us to be angry with one another. And Paul is going to teach us that it all depends on what you do with the idea of love. Paul had spent time in this church and in this city. He'd been there about a year and a half, and he had left, and he's starting to hear when he leaves uh, that all of uh, all the the kind of racial and economic and political uh, groups that had come together in the church, there were starting to be divisions among them, and they were starting to treat each other in in not so great a way. And, And the first 12 chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians is him addressing these issues. So he addresses like the favorite leader issue. All right, the favorite leader issue was there was a a debate within the church of Corinth about what leader are you listening to? What leader are you following? Are you following Paul? Are you following Apollos? Who, Who exactly are you listening to and who are you following? And it was causing division. The freedom in Christ issue, Paul addresses this, that in the city of Corinth, if you uh, weren't a Christian and you worshiped other gods, a lot of times in the culture, they would sacrifice an animal to these gods in, in, a, in an act of worship, and then they would sell that meat in the marketplace. And so a lot of Christians were debating about whether or not it's okay for a Christian to like go to Kroger and pick up a steak that had been sacrificed or whatever, right? Is that okay to eat that meat? And, and some guys are like, give me some horseradish and fry that puppy up, you know, no problem. And others are like, no, are you crazy? You're cra- you can't eat a, 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 a piece of meat that had been sacrificed to a, and it was causing division. And Paul addresses it and uh, uh, encourages us to actually give up our freedoms for the sake of others. The caring for one another problem that this church was having these fellowship meals uh, and, and these events, which is COVID-19, I've missed being in this room with you. I've missed preaching live to you. I miss the events too. We, we haven't been able to do events and just gathering together. I miss having fun together as a church family. And this church loved to do that too. Corinth loved to do that. But what was happening was that they would have these fellowship meals And if you were from an upper class, you were allowed to go first. And a lot of them were overindulging, overeating. Some of them were even getting drunk uh, at these fellowship meals. And then those that had less were were left with nothing or at a minimum, very little. And so Paul spends the first 12 chapters addressing each and every one of these issues. And then he comes to chapter 13. He says, man, if you would just learn to love one another, every one of these issues would be solved. And and listen, all of it should sound quite familiar to us. I I know that this was written to a church, but allow me a little leader, a a little leeway, that they're arguing about what leader are you going to follow? It sounds like a conversation our culture is having right now. They're arguing about, um, uh, they're they're arguing about what, what it means to love and sacrifice for the people around you. 
It sounds like a, a conversation our culture is having right now. They were arguing at one point, Paul addresses an issue of sexual sin and how they were celebrating in the church. That sounds like an argument our culture is having right now. They're talking about how people are cared about and cared for. It sounds like a, a conversation our culture is having. They're talking about freedom. It sounds like a conversation our culture is having. So I want you to see all these years later, we are still having to navigate these issues and here's the deal. We want to make sure to hold on to our love. And what I think this means is, listen, we have to resist our culture's solution to these problems right now. Our culture's solution to these problems right now is to put everybody into categories, pit them against one another, and stand back and see who wins. All right, that's what's happening in our culture right now is everybody gets put into a category, political category, social economic category, gender category, put everybody into a category, pit them against one another and see who wins. Listen, we live in a divided culture right now and you see it everywhere. Have you noticed that we are losing our ability as a culture to disagree with one another? that we are getting angrier and angrier. And most of the time when there's a disagreement, a lot of times it ends with a loss of relationship, an end to relationship. And I think that social media uh, plays a, a role in this, that partly because of COVID, but also just because we're more digital, that we are communicating less and less in person. And so when you're communicating on social media, when you're communicating digitally, it is easier to just let it fly, right? to say whatever mean and kind of hurtful thing you want to say because you don't have to look that person in the eye. I think an increase in voices has played into this, that we have essentially, as a culture, uh, given everyone a megaphone. And so the voices, it's really loud in our country the, the last five to 10 years. It's really loud. Sometimes to feel like you need to be heard, you have to get louder and louder and louder. I, I think a, a leaning toward meme instead of genuine dialogue plays into this, that a lot of times it's just easier to kind of post a meme that is like, sums up like racism or classism or some major issue in like seven words, right? And, and whenever I see a meme like that, I'm like, you can't boil an entire issue that has plagued a country for 200 years. You can't boil that down to seven or eight words. We're losing our ability to have robust dialogue. And this is where our culture is right now. Our culture's solution, if I can just be a diagnostician right now, is we're dividing people, pitting them one against one another and seeing who wins. And listen, it's not working. We're getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And Paul shows us another way. You want to hear another way? Paul shows us another way. Here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. 
Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I love the illustration of the clinging symbol because I think it describes where we're at as a culture right now, that if you are making your argument and you are making your plea without love, all it sounds to everybody around you is like a clanging cymbal. And it describes where our culture is right now. I'm gonna forgive to the at-home audience because I don't know how this is gonna come through the, the television set, but th this is, it describes our culture perfectly. Did you hear what Donald Trump said the other day? Did you hear what Joe Biden said the other day? Face masks, you know, the, the, everything. It, it is a clanging symbol when, when love is not present. And here is Paul's point, not so with you and I. Not so with God's people because we have been changed. We have been transformed by the love of our savior who went to a cross and he died for our sins so we could have the relationship with God we were created to have in this life and the next. And it affects a lot of things. It affects the way we treat our neighbor. It affects the way we treat the people in our church. It affects the way we treat our family. It, it affects the way we, we treat everybody. It, it, it affects the way we treat our enemy. And it affects our dialogue. So listen, as we approach an election that is surely to be contentious. As we continue what is becoming a more and more contentious debate on COVID-19, as our country is being divided on sexual ethics, as we talk about how we're gonna care for one another, especially people of other races, we must remember that we are first and foremost called to love. We are called to love. It is our calling. It is our mission. It is the example of our Savior. And we imitate his love to other people. And so Paul says, listen, love is patient. Later he will go on to say, love is not easily angered. The, 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 the uh, way you can translate this in the Greek is that love is long-suffering. Love puts up with a lot. And in a culture where our fuses are becoming increasingly short, this is a reminder to us that we are called to be long-suffering. We are called to put up with much. We are called to love in, in this way, not prone to anger. And, and what this is built on biblically is the idea that God's not done yet. Right? When I think about how I am patient with you and you are patient to me, like when I say something that you're like, that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard a preacher say. All right, maybe it's already happened today. Hopefully not. But if you ever had that thought, the idea of patience is the idea that, man, God's not done yet. God's not done yet. God is still at work in Steve's life. God is still at work in your, your life. God is still at work in your neighbor's life. God is still at work in the Republican Party. And God is still at work in the opposition party. God is working in the lives of, of, of people. And, and even if I can't see it, we know he's at work. And so it causes me to be patient. 
understanding that I understand I'm a work in progress. I understand you're a work in progress. I understand God is still at work. And this was actually gets tied into the second coming of Jesus. That um, one of the biblical writers t- says, man, you might be uh, tempted to be kind of angsty with Jesus. Where it's like, Jesus, why are you not coming back? What is taking you so long? And you might feel impatient with Jesus. And he says, listen, no, he's not slow in keeping his promise. He's not being slow. He's being patient so that everyone has an opportunity to come to him. And so we just understand that God is at work. I'm not your Holy Spirit. You're not my Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit. And God is at work in the life of every person. And so we exhibit patience for one another. Love is patient. Love is kind. Later on, he will say, love does not dishonor others. These are cut from the same cloth. That, that kindness, it has to do with the way that I speak to people. Honoring has to do with the way I speak about people. And so can I vent just for a minute? Not that I haven't done that yet, but our culture is losing sight of our civility at a rapid level. We're losing sight of our kindness. And sometimes I cannot believe the things that I see, even Christians post on social media, yelling at people, calling them stupid, calling them names that I would never let somebody call my daughter or even my son. And I know the argument. Listen, I've heard the argument a hundred times. The argument that I hear is that there's too much at stake for civility, kindness, and love. That's what we're gonna, we're gonna hear that a million times about this election. There's too much at stake to be civil. There's too much at stake to be kind. There's too much at stake to be, love, to, to be loving. The ends justifies the means. And here's what I would say to you. If you think love is an expendable part of the gospel, if you think love is an expendable part of the gospel in light of an election and who is going to occupy the Oval Office, you have completely lost perspective on the gospel. The gospel is all about love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Love is, the gospel at its core is how God loves us and how we love one another. So no, the ends does not justify the means. You and I are called to kindness. And we are called to treat people with kindness for two reasons. And here's number one. Every single person that you lay eyes on today and tomorrow for the rest of your life, every single person you lay eyes on was created by God and is an image bearer of his. They may not be following God. They may not care about God, but they are created by him. Right? They've chosen to ignore him, but he created them. Every single person you lay eyes on has been created by God. Every single person you're gonna lay eyes on today was died for, uh, died for by Jesus. Now they may not care about Jesus, they may be lost in that way, they may have rejected him, he died for them. And he cares about them. And so every single person you see is created by God, loved by God, and died for by Jesus. And just this fact alone causes us to treat people with kindness, civility, and grace. And here's the other thing, and I'll be done with this part of the sermon, right? Um, Name-calling, condescension, and anger has never changed anyone's mind, ever. Ever. 
Has anyone ever called you a no good so-and-so and you've said, you know what? I want to follow your way. You're making a lot of sense to me. The way you just insulted me and my wife and my family, awesome. I want more of what you've got. It's never changed anything. Love. Love has changed the world again and again and again. So listen, I'm not saying you got to agree with everything the opposition party says. You, you do not, and I hope you don't. Um, I also hope you don't just carte blanche agree with everything one side or the other says as we're, we're heading up, uh, as we're heading to uh, the, the election. I have a party that I tend to lean toward. I don't, don't agree with everything they say or everything we do, but whatever happens, we have to find a way to love. Love does not envy. Love does not envy. And I think that this is one of the things that finds its way into our relationships that we don't really pay that much attention to, but, but we should. That when I see someone with a healthy and happy family and, and, uh, and uh, you see someone with a healthy and healthy fa- family and yours is a challenge, or you see someone that's really doing well financially and you struggle, or you see the house that they live in and you kind of consider yours a shack and every, envy kicks in in that moment. And, and, and here's what happens with envy. Whenever, whenever envy finds its way into your heart when it's directed toward another person, what you will begin to do and what I begin to do is you begin to look at them to try to poke holes into their life. All right, it, ha- it happens all the time. And we don't, we don't even realize that we're doing this. Most, most of the time it's subconscious. So you, you have a family or a house or a net worth or whatever that I envy. All of a sudden I will start lo- examining your life and looking for ways in which you're less than. And I will find myself treating you in an unloving way. The, the flip side of envy that Paul says is love does not boast. And sometimes when we're, we find ourselves envious of somebody, what we'll begin to do is we will boast about our own accomplishments or our own stuff in order to make ourselves feel better. And love says this, love, and this is super hard sometimes, but love says, I am going to celebrate the victories that God has brought into your life. I'm gonna celebrate you. And almost every relationship I know that is successful and thriving and doing well has a celebratory attitude to it. The best marriages I know that are thriving have a celebratory attitude. Uh, The best churches I know that are thriving have a celebratory attitude. The best families that I know have a celebratory attitude. I love it when I over, I love it when I overhear spouses celebrating, uh, celebrating their husband or wife. I love hearing it. I love reading it on social media, that when somebody's celebrating their spouse or celebrating their kids or celebrating their church. Uh, this is just one of those things that love does. Love finds a way to celebrate. Love is not proud. Uh, the Greek word here is um, love, or you may have seen it translated this way in the King James too. Love puffeth up not, Right? Love doesn't feel a need to puff itself up or, or make itself bigger. One of the great relational advices uh, that the Apostle Paul gave was submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That in, my relationships with, in our relationships with one another, we're gonna find a way to serve one another and love one another in this way. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Everyone in a relationship makes mistakes. We all make mistakes. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, Love says, I'm going to stop bringing up your past mistakes. I'm gonna stop using it as leverage to kind of get my way. I'm gonna stop using, I'm gonna stop keeping a record of it. Now, all that being said, the, the Bible does say, love rejoices in the truth. 
right? So love doesn't just ignore the truth and say, well, I'm gonna be a wallflower and I, I'm gonna hang back and just let culture's gonna do whatever they're gonna do. You know what was said about Jesus one time? That he came in grace and truth. And so Jesus found a way to speak the truth, but he didn't speak it in an angry, condescending, upset way. Jesus spoke the truth in grace. And so part of, lo part of loving well is maybe something that's been unspoken needs to be spoken uh, in, in your relationships with one another or even your relationships with people that are a little bit far from you. Maybe a, a piece of truth needs to be spoken in a really graceful way. That, hey, man, I'm concerned about your drinking or I'm concerned about the amount of time you're on your phone or I'm concerned about the amount of time you're on the internet. And a lot of times we think that love is just maintaining peace. I'm not gonna say anything. I'm not, I'm not gonna speak truth and I'm just gonna kind of let things lie. Love, this is messy stuff, but love finds a way to do this well. Love says, no, I'm gonna speak the truth. This election season, I'm gonna speak the truth. Right, during COVID-19, if I see something that's true, I'm gonna speak the truth, but I'm gonna find a way to do it in a graceful way. I'm not gonna name call you because you're a child of God. I'm not gonna scream at you because that's never convinced anybody. I'm not gonna condescend to you because that's prideful and love is not prideful. I'm gonna speak the truth and grace and love. I'm gonna find a way to do that. And so one of the things as you go back through 1 Corinthians 13, one of the things I love to do is you can kind of insert Jesus into this text, right? especially after it gets going a little bit. You can say, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus never boasts. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Aren't you glad about that one? Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Everything's paid for on the cross. And all of it, it describes Jesus and his love for us. And this is why we are loving this is why we are different, because we serve a Savior who is all of these things and has treated us this way. And so we, we love others the way that we have been loved. And I'm telling you, I think the church can lead the way on this. One thing the church should be as good about as anything, the church should be good at love because we've been changed and transformed by it. And so our culture needs this example. They need this example right now. They need to see what it looks like to disagree in love, what it looks like to disagree and still be loving and kind, what it looks like to just kind of speak your peace without attacking, what it looks like to lead in this way. And the only way we're gonna be able to do it is to be connected to Jesus because he was perfect at it. He was so great at it. He, was, he came in grace and truth, grace and truth. And then um, I get as irritated as anybody does when I'm scrolling news or I'm scrolling social media and this kind of anger rises up in me sometimes and it's just important to remember love is what's gonna change our world. And if, if you've got a truth you need to say, you feel God wants you to say it, say it, but say it in grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. As we're getting ready to enter into a time of communion, um, I just pray that we would be changed and transformed by this grace and that our culture would see. One of the things that uh, culture said about the early church was look at how they love one another. Look at how they love. And, and culture was drawn to Jesus because of that. Help us to do this well. 
Help us to love one another the way you have loved us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We're gonna receive communion together. It's under your chair. This is an opportunity for us to reflect on his love, uh, to reflect on the love of our Savior, to reflect on the way that he has loved us. And then uh, I said this uh, last week, I wanna say it again, that um, this is a little cup of communion, but this is your calling in a cup. Right, this is your calling in a cup. That this is Jesus came and he called you to this life. He called you to a life of love, a life of service. And I just want to pray that, uh, I want to be praying for that this week, that we would love one another the way that we have been loved. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. And Jesus came in grace and truth. And so it's hard. There's a lot of tension with it to figure it out how you express disagreement without being angry. It's hard, but we, we can figure it out with Jesus's help because he was perfect at it. So we wanna reflect on his love. And whenever you're ready, take the bread that represents his body, the juice that represents his blood. And then this is kind of the last thing we're gonna do. You're dismissed whenever, whenever you're done spending time with the Lord and uh, you're, you're ready to leave this place in love, you know, and, and say, man, I'm committed to loving the way that Jesus did. Uh, you can just kind of quietly walk out. Uh, God bless you, God keep you, and uh, I'll see you soon.